What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workspace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me from the other side of the world in sunny coastal Australia is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? Yay, I'm here. Yes, I'm good. Enjoying the warm weather. I'm glad to be back recording. Yeah, it feels like we've had quite a long break from recording. It does. It's only been three weeks, but it feels like three months, seriously. Yeah, it's definitely weird not to be recording regularly, but we're back on and back to our normal schedule. Tonight's topic came to us shortly after we had covered the John Juca case last summer, and I had vowed no more wrongful conviction cases, and Allie can attest to this. I sent her many, many messages saying we're never doing (laughs) a case like this. They're just, they're very hard because it's tragedy on tragedy. If something terrible happened and then the wrong person was in jail for the rest of their life for it, or like in this case on death row... It's it's just even more tragedy. And there's always so much to cover. But when our listener Vicky sent us this case and a lot of information on it, I decided to go ahead and cover it. And so thank you, Vicky, for sending this. You know, I don't regret choosing another wrongful conviction case, but it might be a while before I pick one again. Tonight, we're going to cover the murders of Katie, Kara, and Aaron Eastburn, and the conviction, acquittal, and conviction of Timothy Hennis for the crimes. Yes, he was tried three times and convicted after being acquitted, and we'll get to that later. So after doing my own research on this case over the course of a few months, I decided to branch out to see what the internet has to say about the innocence or guilt of Tim Hennis, and I found out that people feel very, very strongly about this case on both sides. And we're probably going to make nobody happy today. But before we do that, we have an exciting announcement. We have a sponsor. Yay! Sponsors support us and let us bring more to you. And to celebrate this, we've decided to do a giveaway every month in 2017. The items will be merchandise, the chance to pick an upcoming episode, get a phone call with one of us. We brainstormed with our group on Facebook, and these are some of the ideas that came out. All the info on this for January will be on Facebook in the next week or two, or you can email us and we'll send you the information. And our sponsor for today is Blue Apron. Okay, Charlie, so I know you just got your Blue Apron box. What are your first thoughts? First of all, it's fresh. Easy food is never fresh. It's always from a box or a can. And second, I love that I have literally what I need for the recipe. It's almost embarrassing how many random pieces of celery or half a head of lettuce that I've thrown away because I only needed a little bit and I didn't use it. And also, they send you the exact amount of seasonings you need. I have a pantry full of jars that have two tablespoons of seasoning out of them that I spent five to eight bucks on each one. So I love that you get what you need. I had a look around their website. I love the diversity of their meals. They never repeat the same meal within the year and you can customise based on your preferences. I'm a vegetarian, so I can really appreciate that. As you know, I'm not a vegetarian, but I like that they use farms that are responsible in how they raise their animals and all their seafood is sourced under the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Guidelines. I use that app when shopping for seafood, so I like that there's no compromise between my normal shopping choices and Blue Apron. So what upcoming meals are you most looking forward to? It's hard to choose, but the mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream sound amazing. That look really good. Yeah, I'm equally looking forward to the cooking competition I'm in with Brooke from Actual Innocence Podcast. 
using the fresh, high-quality Blue Apron boxes, we are having a pod cook-off, and you can follow along on social media and watch me win. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash site. That's S-I-G-H-T. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash site. Let's go ahead and get into our story, and we'll start at the beginning with the people involved. In May of 1985, the Eastburn family and the Hennis family were both living in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville was home to Pope Air Force Base and Fort Bragg Army Base. The bases are now merged, but at the time they were separate. Gary Eastburn was a captain in the Air Force at Pope, and the Eastburns had been married for 10 years and had three daughters, Kara, age 5, Aaron, age 3, and Jana, age 22 months. In May of 1985, Gary was away at Squadron Officer School in Alabama. The family was preparing for a move to England where Gary would work as a liaison to the Royal Air Force. The family also had a family pet, an English setter named Dixie. Moving a pet from country to country is not cheap or easy. And the transport and mandatory quarantining can be extremely stressful for the pet. You'll see it reported both ways that they weren't allowed to bring the dog or that they decided it would be too stressful on Dixie to bring her. Either way, Katie placed a classified ad looking for a home for the dog, and it was answered on Tuesday, May 7, 1985, by Tim Hennis. And now Tim Hennis was a 27-year-old Army sergeant stationed at Fort Bragg. He lived on the other side of Fayetteville with his wife and infant daughter. He and his wife saw Katie's ad, and he headed over to see the dog. Shortly before 9 p.m., he parked his car in front of the house. It was a white Chevette, which will be important later, and headed up to the door. He was pretty sure he was taking the dog home and had even brought his own leash. Tim liked the dog and decided to go ahead and take the dog home to see how Dixie did with his daughter and their other dog. And he used the restroom in the home before he left. Because his daughter was quite young at this time. That's right. Yeah, she was pro- Yeah, she was under a year. She's probably a newborn. Yep. Four days later, and it was around 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, someone shows up at the neighbours of the Eastburns. And here we have Bob Seafelt and his wife. He said that Gary Eastburn had called him because he hadn't been able to get in touch with his wife, Katie. He wanted this man to go and check on her. He asked Bob if he saw anything odd or if he saw Katie leave, which Bob says he hadn't. The next morning, which was Mother's Day, Bob and his wife are talking about the newspapers at the end of the Eastburn driveway. There had been three of them, which was, which, which was unusual because it looked like the family was away. But then again, the car was in the driveway and the stroller was next to the front door, which was their usual places. Between the visit the night before and the newspapers, Bob thought he'd better go check it out. Bob picks up the newspapers and brings them with him and he rings the front doorbell. He hears a baby crying inside the house, but he can't seem to see any movement or hear anyone walking around. His wife was outside as well, so he calls over to her to see if she could hear the baby crying. She says she could hear Jana crying, so she goes back inside her house to call the sheriff. Now, there are two different accounts at this point. One account is that at some point, someone calls Julie Cernak, and she's the Eastburn's babysitter, who we will talk more about later on. So Julie arrives before the sheriff, and she sees Jenna standing in her crib crying. So Julie wants to get inside the house, but Bob convinces her to wait on the authorities, which is understandable, right? I know if I was in her situation, my focus would be getting to that baby and getting her some help. But the other story, a news interview with Bob shortly after the event, he doesn't mention Julie being there at all. The first officer on the scene cuts a window screen to the bedroom where Jana was in and he climbs into the room. He passes the babies with some diapers through the window. 
With what we will tell you shortly, it makes sense that he would want to get Bob out of the way, so he tells Bob to take the baby to his place and look after her until they can find her mother. So Bob takes the baby over to his house, and his wife cleans her up and feeds her. You see, the officer smells something horrible. He walks into the hallway and sees the bodies of three-year-old Erin and her mother Katie. The homicide unit is immediately called in. I'm not going to get graphic, because this is upsetting enough. I saw an interview with one of the detectives from 30 years later, and he got choked up just talking about the crime scene. But we do have to explain it a little bit. In the living room, there were torn women's clothing. Then they found Kara's body, and she was the five-year-old. She was in her bed with her covers pulled up. Aaron and Katie were both in the master bedroom together, Due to the torn clothing in the living room and semen found, it was determined that Katie was very likely raped. The causes of death were stabbing. There was forensic evidence. There were footprints, size 9, outside the house. There was a spot of blood on a towel that didn't match any of the family members in the bedroom. So remember, this is the mid-80s, so we aren't talking DNA just yet, just blood typing. There was a semen sample, though, like I said, no DNA at this point. However, 85% of the population is what we call secretors, meaning their blood type can be detected through secretions like semen or saliva. I read the typing was done on the blood and semen samples, but I didn't see what the results were. Because blood type isn't unique to an individual, it really can only be used to exclude someone. Fingerprints and hairs were found and collected. Luminol showed some smears of blood on the walls, which looks like the murderer attempted to clean up. Now, the scene was very violent and bloody, so it's not like he was trying to hide a murder. He may have been trying to clean up his own blood, which kind of goes back to there being a spot of blood on a towel. Or he was trying to clean off a bloody finger or palm print of his. It was determined the murderer's likely happened on Thursday night because the neighbors had seen Katie Eastburn Thursday during the evening and the first unclaimed newspaper was Friday's morning's newspaper. After Gary Eastburn arrived home from Alabama, he went through the house to see if there was anything taken. An envelope of cash, Katie's ATM card, and a piece of paper with her pin on it were missing. I've also seen it reported that her wallet with other cards were missing and that the activity on these cards was either not traced or the information never made it into the file. And before we go further, Gary Eastburn was nearly immediately cleared as a suspect. He was in Alabama at the time. To travel from Alabama to North Carolina and back completely undetected would have been impossible for the average Joe and more so with the military, where your attendance is literally taken every day. There was absolutely no evidence that he hired someone to do this or that he even had a motive to do it. He did ask, when he got a phone call, how many of them were dead. And I mean, that was his question. And some people think this is odd. But if we take a step back, we know he already suspected something terrible had happened. No one answered the phone calls that he made over Saturday, repeated phone calls, and no one opened the door for the friend he sent over there to check on them. So when the police called him the next day and he already thought there was something wrong, it doesn't seem like a big leap that that would be his question. And this friend that went to Bob's house to ask about Katie, I hadn't seen him mentioned again throughout the story. Obviously, the police would have talked to him and cleared him. I have to assume the only report of him I saw was from Bob, the neighbor, talking about it in a news interview right after it happened. I didn't see it written down anywhere or really much part of the narrative in any other account. Because, I mean, my question is, did Gary really send this friend? Was it Gary's friend or was he involved in the murders? All I know is Bob said he got a knock on the door about it. I would assume if they this person was a suspect in the murders, it would be a bigger part of the story, though. By not including it, by it dropping out of the narrative pretty early on, it probably wasn't really much of a clue. It just seems strange that it was just dropped, not mentioned again. Anyway, 
While searching the house, authorities are approached by a man called Patrick Cohn. Patrick tells them he sees someone suspicious on the Friday night, May 10th. The police believe this to be the night of the murders, so they are obviously interested in hearing what he has to say. Now, three nights earlier, Patrick is walking home from his girlfriend's house, and it's about 3.30 in the morning, so it would be still dark. I think that's fair to say, right? Oh, yeah. Anyway, Patrick says he sees a tall man. He's about six foot two or six foot three, and he's leaving the Eastburn residence with a garbage bag over his shoulder. He was a Caucasian male with blonde hair and a blonde moustache. He was wearing blue jeans, a knitted cap, and a dark or black-coloured members-only jacket. When he passes this man, he says something about getting an early start to the morning. Patrick later turns around to see where the man went, which, I mean, I believe because I know I do that when someone a bit odd or creepy passes me in the street. And Patrick sees the man leave in a white Chevrolet car. Two days after the Eastburns were discovered, Patrick sits down with a sketch artist to make a composite sketch. We talked in detail about composite sketches and how reliable or not so reliable they are in our Bible John episode. So I recommend going back and listening to that if you haven't already, because it's really a fascinating part of an investigation. When investigators found out that just days before the murder, Katie had a man to the house to pick up the dog, they put out a special news broadcast looking for that man. Tim Hennis happened to be home for lunch with his wife and daughter when he was watching the news and saw that broadcast. The broadcast was specific that they were looking for someone who drove a white Chevette and had picked up the Eastburn's dog. He had, of course, heard about the murder, but he didn't realize it was the same family he had picked up the dog from. So realizing he was the person they were looking for, he and his family drove down to the police station to talk to the police. One of the detectives took one look at Hennis and just stopped in his tracks. Hennis and Patrick Cohn's composite sketch were a near-perfect match. And they are very close. The nose is a special standout to me. I don't blame the detective for being pretty suspicious at this point. Asked about his Thursday night, Hennis told them that he had driven his wife and daughter to his in-law's house for a visit and returned home by himself. The only stop he had made was for gas. He was questioned for around seven hours. He gave blood, saliva, hair samples, fingerprints, and palm prints. He did say that Katie had called him on Thursday at some point, possibly in the evening, to ask how the dog was doing. But other than picking up the dog and that quick phone call, he said he had never had any other contact with her, and he hadn't even caught her name which is why the news of the murder didn't really register with him until he saw that broadcast. So while all this was happening, Patrick Cohn was at the station and he's shown a photo lineup of six men and they are all blonde with moustaches. He picks out Tim Hennis. So I think it's a good time to talk about cross-racial identification and the cross-race effect, which is basically we are better at identifying people of our own race. There was a study done of real-life cases which showed that people are about 60% accurate in identifying people of their own race, and they're only 45% accurate with people of other races. What this means is they get it wrong more than they get it right, and that's a big deal if we're going to use eyewitnesses in court like in this case, especially when the main eyewitness here sees who he believes is Hennis in the middle of the night at the crime scene. If DNA, for example, was 45% accurate, I can't see a judge allowing it. In this case, Patrick Cohn was black and Tim Hennis was white. So Hennis is allowed to go home, but authorities took all of this to the prosecutor who secures, uh, who secures an arrest warrant that evening. I'm going to make an unusual storytelling choice here. We're going to go with expediency over chronology and detail. Rather than go into the first two trials in order, I'm going to lay out the bulk of the case for Tim Hennis's guilt and his and the case for his innocence at once in a bullet point format. 
And that makes sense because the first two trials were basically the same. Right. Some of the information was only available to one or the other juries, but on the whole, what was what differed in the case we will talk about, but most of what differed was that his defense in the second trial focused very heavily on the forensic evidence not matching him. But other than that, it's mostly the same information. And we're just going to give it to you guys all at once, and we'll talk about the third trial later because that one was different. And there is some minutia we're going to be skipping. For instance, a witness misreported the weather from the night he supposedly saw Tim Hennis. Now, that doesn't exactly favor his memory, but we can't get to that level of detail and end this show in less than four hours. So there are some things, one way or the other, that we are leaving out. So the case against Tim Hennis in bullet point form. Tim Hennis's alibi of heading straight home from his in-law's house on Thursday appears to be a lie. A former girlfriend of Hennis's, Nancy Mazur, told detectives that her husband was deployed out of the country and Hennis stopped by on Thursday night. He came in and they talked. Hennis supposedly told her that his wife had left him. Apparently the investigators did find out that Hennis and his wife were in the midst of a legal separation. Nothing romantic happened and he left. Now this forms the prosecution's motive. Tim Hennis was a man on the lookout for an affair while his wife and baby were away. When he struck out with his ex, he went to Katie's house possibly misreading her friendliness for flirtation. Rejected again, he took out his anger on Katie and her children. Now, motive is not necessary to prosecute a murder, though it's generally helpful for a jury. This Friday morning after the murders, Tim brought his members-only jacket to the dry cleaners. Now, that's not strange in itself, but this is the only item he takes to the dry cleaners. And then on Saturday, Tim's neighbours report he had a five-hour fire in a large burn barrel in his yard. And that's something that he had never done before. Bank records show that the card stolen from Katie Eastburn was used twice to take out $150 each time, which was the maximum. Tim Hennis owed just over $300 in back rent that he paid shortly after the murder. Using bank records, investigators found the woman who used the same ATM after the person who used Katie's ATM card, and she says that she sees a tall blonde man getting into a light-coloured car. And finally, of course, we have Patrick Cohn's identification of both Tim Hennis and his car. So that's the basic of the case against him. The case for his innocence starts with... I'll just say the forensic evidence. The blood, the hair, and the fingerprints did not match Tim Hennis. And the footprints outside the house were a men's size 9. Tim wore an 11 or 12. Now, the problem I have with the woman who used the ATM after the person with Katie's card, she used it three minutes later. Did the person who used the card really stand around for a full three minutes waiting on a witness to show up before leaving? That part doesn't make sense. If I was using an ATM card of someone I just murdered, I wouldn't be standing around waiting for someone to see me. Now, Hennis had an alibi for the ATM use time. He was on 24-hour duty. However, when the defence went to get the sign-out sheet, it was missing. Suspicious? Well, the sign-out sheet was later found, and guess where it was found? The sign-out sheet was found in the prosecutor's file in preparation for the second trial. The defense investigator tried to recreate the night with Patrick Cohn, and he was not able to see what he claimed he saw. He said on the stand that the defense investigator had confused him, and he stood by his identification, but the video of him denying his own story was pretty damning. And Patrick Cohn also wrote a letter to a friend stating he was unsure if Tim Hennis did it and was the man he saw. He also used his, quote, helping the police to get out of a handful of minor criminal charges. And about that members-only jacket, an expert testified that generic dry cleaning would not have removed bloodstains from the members-only jacket, that there's a special treatment needed, and that was not done on the jacket. 
Because, you know, in the original cases, the only thing connecting Hennis to the murder was Patrick Cohn, really, and the fact that he visited the Eastburn house once to buy the dog. The whole case does come down to Patrick's identification at this stage because during these first two trials, there really wasn't anything, any evidence that had him inside the house. During the second trial, the defence had an older teen named John Rippore walk into the courtroom and he basically stunned everyone. John lived in the neighbourhood and and during the night when he couldn't sleep, he would just walk the streets. And he had a striking resemblance to Tim Hennis. So much so that it was believable that everyone in the room thought that Patrick could have seen John and identified him as Tim even to the point where he owned a similar members-only jacket. Two neighbors saw a light-colored van near the Eastburn house the day of the murders, and Katie Eastburn had been getting threatening phone calls and suspected someone might be following her. Both her husband and babysitter confirmed this. And the Eastburn's babysitter, while we're on that topic, is a bit of an odd figure in this, and I honestly really don't know where to put this, so now is as good a time as any. The babysitter told the police about the phone calls, but she also gave them more information about how her stepbrothers kind of looked like Tim Hennis and that she was an informant for the police reporting on drug dealers. There's been some chatter that the drug dealers she knew had been to the Eastburn's home. Now, what if anything this has to do with the murder? Who knows? But what people find most odd is that she was fascinated by the Jeffrey McDonald case, and she even wrote to him in jail. Now, for those who don't know about the Jeffrey McDonald case, it was another murder case of a family. And the parallels between the McDonald family murders and the Eastburns are striking. Both happened in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Dr. McDonald was a captain in the Army. Both murders happened in the wee morning hours. Both were stabbing deaths of a mother and two daughters. In the McDonald case, however, the husband was not away. In fact, he was on the floor next to his wife. He was injured, but not to the level his family was, and survived after spending a week in the hospital with a collapsed lung from a stab wound. McDonald claims that a group of hippies broke in and committed the crime. However, nine years after the murders, he was convicted of the murders himself. He is in federal prison in Maryland. If McDonald could link the murder of his family to the shockingly similar murder of the Eastburns, it might prove his innocence. You know, clearly there's some roving band of hippies and they struck again. So I think the conspiracy theory here is that if someone was so devoted to proving McDonald innocent, would they have committed or paid someone to commit a copycat crime to strengthen his case for innocence. I don't know your thoughts on that, Allie. I don't like any connection between these cases. I think that it would be too far-fetched for the reasons that we've talked about and the reasons that we will talk about. There is just too much there. There's too much. Why there is parallels, there are a lot of differences as well. Yes, and I think it's interesting that she was fascinated with the McDonald case. However, she lived in Fayetteville, which is where the murder happened, and a lot of people are fascinated with that case. I know I would have been. I I would have been fascinated with it as well. I know we have an episode coming up about our own twisted hometown stories, and there is something about crimes that happen in your hometown that you feel a little bit more connected to. And, I mean, it really could just be that. Now, her connection to drug dealers seems like a little bit more of something that should have been explored, and it may have been. The fact that she was connected with drug dealers to a certain point, it would lead me to believe that she would have some connections with less savoury people in town, and that may have known that Gary was out of town. I guess before we do move on from the first two uh, trials, uh, Hennis was offered a plea bargain at some stage, Because the prosecution didn't have a confession and there was a lack of physical evidence, the plea bargain was offered. And Hennis, maybe he realised the prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial, but he turned the plea deal down. 
So the first trial lasted three weeks, and after 10 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a conviction. In July of 1986, Tim Hennis was given three death sentences. Hennis was convicted of the murders in his first trial. However, he won a new trial on appeal. The reason for the appeal was the prosecutors showed a slideshow of the Eastburn's body to the jury. By the act of showing these photos, it was it was proved unnecessary for the case against Hennis, and they did more to and they were used more to provoke emotion. For example, some of the photos that were used were of the children on the autopsy table. And that was absolutely not necessary. Well, it doesn't it doesn't prove anything to do with who murdered the family. Exactly. So the judge sees this slideshow and rules five to two that Hennis should get a new trial. But before this successful appeal, while he was still sitting on death row, Tim Hennis received a letter dated July 8th, 1986, which was days after his conviction. The letter read, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X. The Sheriff's Department also received a letter from Mr. X a year later on July 7 of 1987. And this letter reads, I'm passing through Fayetteville on my way to New Jersey. I murdered the Eastburns. I did the crime. Hennis is doing the time. Thanks again, Mr. X. Now, both these letters are postmarked from Fayetteville and the handwriting was consistent with one another. Although I don't know that a handwriting expert confirmed this. Again, if you want to learn more about handwriting analysis, we recommend you go back and listen to our Poison Pen Letter episode. And there you'll get a crash course of how all this works. And I can say these letters, postcards, whatever they were, they were very Zodiac-like in that they seemed very taunting and that some people believe the writer's identity were revealed in the letters. In September of 1988, a local attorney with the last name Deaver received a phone call from someone who identified himself as Mr. X. The call was taken by Deaver's secretary. The man told Deaver's secretary to tell Hennis that he had a, quote, lousy lawyer and that he, Mr. X, had committed the Eastburn murders. The caller also told the secretary to tell Deaver thanks for screwing up the Hennis case and getting the wrong guy convicted. Now, Mr. Deaver was not Hennis's attorney. His attorney's name was Beaver, and it seems Mr. X may not have done his homework as thoroughly as he should have. And this is another reason why I don't think McDonald was involved, because obviously he wouldn't be making these phone calls and sending these letters from prison. And if he was involved, that would involve him getting even more people involved in the copycat murders. It just seems unlikely. Yeah, I don't see the connection. A lot of information we talked about on the side of Tim Hennis being innocent, it all came out in the second trial, and this happened in the late winter of 1989. I think the defence took a more aggressive approach in this trial. They came out with this theory that Katie and the children were murdered by the mysterious caller, and there was some hair found on Katie's bed that didn't come from any of the Eastburns or from Hennis, and the several bloodstains from the house, as you mentioned before, Charlie, they weren't the blood types of the family or of Hennis. The defence argued the overkill nature of the murders wasn't consistent with a man who had merely been turned down for casual sex. And I would agree with them on that statement, unless this scenario, the murderer was a, was a complete sociopath, but we can talk more about that in theories. The other difference in this trial and the first trial is that Tim Hennis testified in his own defence. The prosecutors tried to provoke his temper during their cross-examination, but he managed to keep his cool. Though it's hard to say if testifying is what helped him, because the only jury statements that are available, well, at least what we could find, the only jury statements that are available about his testimony was a man who referred to Tim as appearing to be, quote, unquote, the kind of a-hole who could have done it. I think it's the forensic evidence, though, pointing away from him that got him ultimately acquitted of all charges. 
Gary Eastburn remained convinced that Hennes was guilty, and you can only imagine what the second trial and acquittal did to him. He had put off his liaison position in England, but he and Jana eventually went, and there he met and married a British nurse and eventually left the service. For the Hennis family, after the acquittal, Tim Hennis rejoined his family, and by this point, his baby girl was four years old. Tim was no longer a convicted murderer, and he decided to enlist again in the army. Because his discharge was due to the conviction, the army gave him his missed pay for the three years, and he was promoted to staff sergeant. He and his wife had another child, a son this time. In the early 90s, he spent some time overseas during Operation Desert Shield in Saudi Arabia, and he spent time in Somalia. And then in 2004, Hennis retired from the service and took a civilian job. The story is not over, though. A reporter named Scott Wisnat attended the retrial because he was covering the trial for a Wilmington paper. As he covered the trial, he said he went from thinking the jury wouldn't convict Hennis to, quote-unquote, this guy might actually be innocent. He ended up writing a book about the case called Innocent Victims, and there was actually a miniseries made based on the book. Now, this book was published in 1993, so it is a bit dated, but it is worth the read. It only covers the case up to this point, but if you are interested and you haven't read the book yet, it's definitely worth the read. And it does go into more graphic detail into the crime scene that we didn't go into. So if you do like those details, the book would be a good place to go. What often happens when the system believes they got the right guy but couldn't convict him, that all happened here. They all but stopped investigating for a number of years. It became officially unsolved after the acquittal, but the people in charge of solving it, they felt they already had done their job. But about 12 years after Scott published his book, a group of North Carolina homicide detectives were at a seminar and the teacher, who was also a crime analyst, he was using the Eastburn case as a case study for the class. Scott's book was used as part of the class, so he was invited in to speak. He was approached by a detective named Larry Trotter. In their conversation, Scott mentioned that there were two semen samples taken from Katie's body and neither had been tested for DNA. And I guess by this stage, DNA would be a bit more sophisticated and they would be able to learn a bit more. Yes, and he was... Scott remained convinced that Tim Hennis didn't do it and that the answer was in that DNA test. The detective Larry Trotter said he had been planning on testing those semen samples, though the seminar definitely motivated him to go ahead and move forward on that. He sent the samples to the lab to have them tested, and specifically to have them tested against one man, Tim Hennis. I do not know if he had other people he tried to match them to, but it wouldn't matter. A year later, the tests were complete and the DNA did match Tim Hennis. And I know a year seems like a long time to run DNA when Maury can run can run a paternity <laughs> test overnight and CSI can do it in under an hour. But in reality, it takes longer. And part of why it takes longer is that there's only so much the lab can do. Cold cases tend to get pushed down the priority list. And honestly, if you think about it, you can see why. If you have a guy sitting in jail waiting for a trial... You don't want his right to a speedy trial delayed because he's waiting on DNA because a handful of 30-year-old cases got put ahead of his. Or there's an active serial rapist who's currently targeting new victims while investigators are waiting on DNA. It's tricky because every case is important no matter how old it is. And in a perfect world, the DNA labs would be able to run more DNA more often, but that's not where we are. And so there are some practical factors to consider. Now, Tim Hennis was acquitted on his second trial, and that in the U.S. is supposed to be it. We have near absolute double jeopardy laws. Like O.J. Simpson could have stood on the courthouse steps and pulled out the matching bloody glove and screamed, I did it. And he couldn't have been tried again for the murders. And I know it's not quite that absolute in Australia, is it, Allie? That's correct. 
So in Australia, from what I've been reading, if there's compelling new evidence, like a DNA match, you can go back to trial after an acquittal. And it's only if the offence draws life imprisonment as well. So it wouldn't be for a minor crime? No, it wouldn't be for, I don't know, a DUI. Okay. So how did that get changed? Because you used to have double jeopardy laws like ours. Yeah, it only changed in recent times, actually, in 2007, except in Canberra and Victoria. And Canberra changed their laws about a year ago. But the turning point was the extremely violent sexual assault and murder of a toddler called Deidre Kennedy. And that happened in Ipswich near Brisbane in 1973. Twelve years after Deidre's murder, a conviction was secured partly due to a bite mark on the little girl's leg, and it matched a man called Raymond John Carroll. He appealed, and the conviction was quashed, and he was set free. Unfortunately, after this, more evidence was found tying Carroll to the murder, but as we know with double jeopardy, nothing could be done. The prosecution didn't just want an alleged guilty man going scot-free, So they charged him with perjury, and he was found guilty of that. But the fact that he was found guilty of perjury for a murder he couldn't be tried again for, it left the whole case open for appeal, and that's what happened in the High Court. The verdict was overturned due to an abuse of process. So obviously that didn't go down well within the community and and in victims' advocate groups, So due to public pressure, the double jeopardy laws were changed across Australia, as I said, in 2007. New evidence like that here does not get around double jeopardy, though a lot of people wish it would. And it's also one of the reasons sometimes prosecutors hesitate to go to trial on cases like where they don't have a body because they know if the body is found and there's DNA linking the person they tried, but if they had been acquitted, they don't get another bite at that apple. And I can understand how frustrating that would be for the victims' families and for the community where it happened, because you know, you're pretty sure the killer is there, and if there's nothing you can do about it, it would leave the community terrified. I had never really thought about the downfalls of having such an absolute double jeopardy system here. And it's interesting because this is the first time I've actually really thought about it. But I get it because it does protect innocent people to a certain point that they're not just being taken to court over and over again. Exactly. There is really one exception to double jeopardy here. And since Tim had a third trial, obviously it was, this case fits that. Double jeopardy here only applies to a single jurisdiction. State court and federal court are not equal in this regard. So if someone is acquitted in the state court and there are reasons to try them in the federal court, they can be charged with the same crime in federal court on federal charges. So I kind of wondered how often this happened, and the answer is very rarely. Rarely do cases meet the criteria for federal court, and the Justice Department's policy is to not make a habit out of doing this. Because Tim was in the Army when the crime happened, he could be court-martialed for it. And when I was a kid, I thought a court-martial was just to kick you out of the service, and it can do that, but it's also a full trial with a jury, which they call members, and they decide the accused's guilt or innocence, and the rules are different a bit and the terminology is different so if you are interested there is a podcast called military justice and they that podcast covers the ins and outs of the justice system within the military and also with a little bit of an emphasis on reforming it another court being used as a workaround to double jeopardy prohibition is a very contentious topic and you can spend hours reading op-eds about it There is a history from the founding of this country to the Mexican-American War to 20th century Supreme Court decisions on this, so there's lots of information out there. But regardless of all that information, the Army decided to use its rarely traveled path around double jeopardy to try Tim Hennis for the murder of the Eastburns. 
The statute of limitations on the rape had expired, so that charge was not brought. But Tim was retired, remember? Well, the army used another path that it doesn't often take. The military can call any retiree back to active service for the remainder of their life. I had no idea this was a possibility, and it's rarely done, is probably why I had no idea it was a possibility. In September of 2006, the Army showed up at Tim Hennis's door and handed him his orders to report back to Fort Bragg for duty. At the time, he was living in Washington State, on the other side of the country, but he was being called back up to active service so that he could be court-martialed. His court-martial didn't begin until 2010, and in the meantime, he was collecting his military pay and benefits, and he was even working a part-time desk job. One way that a court-martial is different from a civilian trial is that they only need two-thirds of the members to convict. But since this was a death penalty case... That requires a unanimous vote on both the conviction and the sentence. So if one member didn't vote to convict, then the death penalty is off the table. To give an idea of the span of this process, the first trial was while Tim's daughter wasn't much more than a baby. During the second trial, she was a preschooler. And during this time around, during his third trial, his daughter was pregnant with her second child. Tim was now a grandfather. The evidence wasn't much more than what we outlined before, but the defence focused more on things that didn't match. But the, but the military had a smoking gun in the form of a DNA match. And we know it's really hard to argue against DNA. We've seen that before in cases like the Austin yogurt shop case we did last year. It can exonerate someone, but it can also do the opposite and be used to secure a conviction. Tim Hennis's defence team did what I would have done if I was them. They attacked the collection and storage of the samples. In the 1980s, the people processing the scenes weren't nearly as careful or as sophisticated about things like touch DNA like they are now. I mean, even the importance of making sure the techs on scene are wearing gloves. That didn't always happen. And because of that, the entire crime scene could be compromised. There was also a major issue with the lab processing the evidence that broke right around the time of Tim's court-martial. In 2010, that same year of the court-martial, the North Carolina State Crime Lab was caught in a massive scandal. Lab technicians were caught falsifying and withholding information, always to the benefit of the prosecution. The case that broke this wide open was that of Greg Taylor. He was the first guest on the Actual Innocence podcast, so I know we're giving you like more podcast listening assignments here, but I do recommend you go listen to the story straight from his point of view on the first episode of Actual Innocence. But the basic deal is that a preliminary test showed that there was blood in Taylor's car. Dwayne Deaver, the serologist, prepared this information into a lab report that was used in Taylor's trial and he was convicted. When looking into this case and his claims of innocence, his appeals attorneys found Deaver's notes that indicated a follow-up test did not confirm this substance as blood. That information was never disclosed. The only information that was was what helped convict Taylor, and he was released after spending 17 years in jail due to this falsified report, or this report of omission, I guess we could say. And Dwayne Deaver comes up in another high-profile case. Did you watch this staircase documentary, Allie? I sure did. Deaver is the blood expert that testified at Michael Peterson's trial and is the reason he's getting a new trial. Correct. The state attorney general ordered a review of the lab and its procedures, and that was conducted by two FBI agents. And the results were shocking. I'll put up a link to the American Bar Association's article about it with the details, but it showed that this was not an isolated case or an issue with a single technician or even the only way that the lab acted inappropriately. The DNA lab specifically was not involved in this investigation. However, this is all one big lab. Tim's lawyers did request for a postponement while they investigated the lab 
and this breaking news, but the judge denied it. And the DNA evidence in Tim's case was not explored to see if it was involved in any of this lab scandal. In the meantime, military prosecutors found a second smear from the rape kit that they could test. I haven't found a lot on this outside of the passing mention on CNN's CNN's Death Row Stories episode on this case. And I did look around a lot and I know you, Charlie, and I know you would have I know you would have spent ages looking as well. But this second smear was sent to the military lab and it also matched tennis. The defence wanted additional items at the scene tested. They were able to have the bloody towel that was found in the master bedroom tested, also the DNA under Katie's fingernails. What they found under Katie's fingernails was just a partial DNA, and that didn't match Tim. And the DNA on the towel also didn't match Tim. It would have meant that the blood on the towel and the DNA under the fingernails were against the semen samples. The DNA from the sperm was a huge obstacle. Now, it could have been contaminated from the start, meaning it wasn't the test that was the problem, but rather the sample. But that's still an uphill climb to convince the jury of that. The defence then took a sharp left turn on the DNA evidence. In closing, they decided to argue that there was another reason Tim Seaman could have been there. Katie and Tim could have had consensual sex at some point shortly before her death. None of her injuries specifically proved rape, though that's not uncommon. Around 30% of rape victims do not have injuries specific to having been raped. It doesn't sound like they outright claimed an affair happened. They just kept saying things like, is it possible? And it was an attempt to give reasonable doubt to the DNA evidence. And you'll see people online say, well, Tim Hennis now claims he actually never claimed having sex with Katie Eastburn. This is his attorneys talking only. And I have to say, I think this was a bad call. It paints the victim as a woman who would cheat on her husband with a man she just met with her kids in the house. And then is the jury really supposed to believe that she just happened to have sex with Tim and then just happened to be murdered with her clothes torn off by someone else later. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the members of the jury knew that. Also, for there to be evidence that she was raped, that would mean that she fought back, I would assume, and that would mean that she was conscious during the rape. She may have been knocked out. It may have been after she was already murdered. Exactly. And again, the problem I have with the theory that she happened to have sex and then was murdered, the problem with that theory is how do you explain bringing a restraining device to a scene plus latex gloves if this was just a romantic encounter? I mean, bringing these items just doesn't jive with someone snapping due to them being turned down for sex. I don't feel that the prosecution's motive fits, and I also don't feel that this idea that Tim Hennessy's DNA got there through consensual sex fits either. Neither of those pieces fit. So after three hours of deliberation, he was found guilty in a unanimous verdict that put the death penalty on the table. For Tim's side, he had a flawless record in the time after the murders when he was a free man. He contributed to his family. He was a big part of the army. He was... Uh, active member in society. Against him was Gary Eastburn, who once again, he had to testify, but in this time it was in front of his new wife. And I would imagine that any marriage after the death of a former spouse, it would already be fraught with mixed emotions. But testifying yet again, it just would have added to that pain. And he addressed that when he spoke during his sentencing phase. This case is just so sad and tragic, but when you add on to that the pain and the guilt Gary Eastburn would have been carrying around all these years, it's almost too much. Tim Hennis was sentenced to death and he is currently on death row at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. There are only five other men on death row there. One of them is Nadal Hassan, or better known as the Fort Hood Shooter. So as with any conviction, and especially any death penalty case, there have been a lot of appeals. The handling of the DNA has been one basis, 
But probably the strongest argument Tim Hennis has, in my opinion, is both the double jeopardy workaround, but also jurisdiction. He's filed something like a dozen petitions based on the idea that the military had no jurisdiction over the case. So the crime was committed in 1985 during Tim Hennis's initial enlistment. His official discharge date from the military on paper is June 12, 1989, and he then re-enlisted the next day on June 13th. And his claim is that because there was a break in service, it means the military cannot try him for things that happened during his previous enlistment. So far, he hasn't gotten very far with this argument, but but it is an interesting one. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that because the crime happened while he was enlisted in the army. So I think it's a fair call that they can try him. Being able to try people for things they did in the past in the army is kind of a interesting idea. But, you know, his idea is that it wasn't a continuous enlistment. And so if they want to try him for something that they still that they lost their jurisdiction in those 24 hours, because had he not retired, but had been just discharged and wasn't getting his military pension and stuff, they wouldn't have been able to call him back. Okay. So it's it's just odd. It's a very odd situation. It's a very odd case. It's an odd case. And that's, if it sounds like we're just giving you both sides of it, it's pretty much because we just see both sides of it. We have to ask the question, if it wasn't Hennis, then who could it have been? And it may seem like a trick move to bring up people we haven't already named. I mean, anyone, I don't know, have you ever seen that classic murder comedy, Murder by Death, Allie? No, I haven't. It's like a 1970s movie. It's hilarious. And the largest premise of it is name, you know, the red herrings and naming a suspect at the end who you'd never mentioned before. But I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> According to Dr. Morris Godwin, who is an expert for the defense for the court martial phase, Tim Hennis was not the only person to come by to see the dog. Another man came by on May 3rd, and he was never followed up on. The idea is really when Tim Hennis walked into that police station and matched Patrick Cohn's sketch and identification, perhaps the police got tunnel vision and really just dropped anyone else who wasn't Tim Hennis. Some people look at those close to Katie and to those who would know that she was alone that night. They look at Patrick Cohn, who walked through the neighbourhood when he left his girlfriend's house. Then there was that teen who looked so much like Hennis, they could have been brothers. Maybe a neighbour. It really could have been anyone in Katie's life. Others look at the babysitter and or those around her. She, as, we, as Charlie said before, she pointed out her stepbrothers looked like Hennis. She had a fascination with a similar case. She was an informant against local drug dealers, and she may have had connections with more questionable folks in town. There was another similar murder that happened in 1987 when Jay Mintz was stabbed to death in a house with her children. She, like Katie Eastburn, had recently put an ad in the newspaper selling something. There is DNA in that case, but it has not been compared to the additional DNA in the Eastburn case, like the blood on the towel or the partial DNA from under Katie's fingernails. And in fact, none of the unmatched DNA has been matched or compared as far as we know. There have been requests from outside the police force to have it entered into CODIS, but that request has continually been denied. And that's crazy in my view, because the similarities with this case and the Eastburn case, it's shocking because... Investigators believe the killer answered a classified ad about a waterbed to get into the house. So you have that. You have the child left in the house crying. You have the woman, you know, being bound and raped. There is so many parallels with the cases. Right. And when you have DNA, you need to test it. And if Tim Hennis did this and there was other DNA on that scene, then someone else did it with him. There was an accomplice Correct. there under her fingernails. That's not an easy place to get somebody's DNA. Someone else's blood on a towel in the master bedroom. That's not something that would have just accidentally happened. 
I think it's irresponsible, honestly, even if Tim Hennis did it, that we're not testing this other DNA to find out who did it with him. And I know you say that it's 30 years, the cold cases do take the back seat, but come on, we've got two cases here so similar. Just test the DNA. Right. And it, I t- it testing it isn't going to hurt anything because you already matched Tim's DNA and he's convicted. So all you have to do is match this DNA and now you have his accomplice if he supposedly did it with somebody else. And I do want to just throw one thing out there that I'm not 100% sure where this fits, but the defense did have some additional items privately tested and some of those results have not been released, which of course people lead to believe they were not favorable towards Tim Hennis, but they could have also just been inconclusive. I guess I don't know where this fits in either, but can we talk about the reason why the baby wasn't killed? I mean, the obvious would be that quite possibly the killer figured out she was too young to testify or identify him in a lineup. I did see in the 2020 episode, which side topic, it's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Gary Eastburn is interviewed and just hearing him talk about what happened, it, it broke my heart. And then Jana is interviewed and she says that she thinks she was kept alive to look after her dad. It broke my heart, seriously. I had a neighbor who lost her husband very suddenly to a heart attack and she said the only reason she got out of bed the next day is she had kids to take care of. And I think having someone else responsible, someone else you're responsible for and needs you, helps you move forward. I do think that either she slept through it and the murderer may not have known she was in there, or she was young enough that, I mean, there was no way she would have ever recognized him. I mean, she was hypnotized at some stage, and she said the killer said something like, I can't kill anymore, and some other things along those lines. I mean, how much of that is true, and how much of that is suggestion or false memories, I don't know. Yeah, But I mean, her crib was left with toys in it and it had a bottle that had had milk in it at some stage. I mean, is it possible that if Hennis was responsible, he had a baby daughter of his own, maybe he couldn't kill her because she reminded him of his own daughter? So, Ali, I know we've gone back and forth on this. Do you lean one way or the other, innocent or guilty for Tim Hennis? Usually when we do a case, I am positive in my mind what happened. I don't or I can't always say it on air, but I usually have a definitive answer to what I think happened. But this one, I flip-flop back and forth on whether I think Hennis had anything to do with it. There are just too many unanswered questions for me. You have the footprints, the phone calls, the other guy, the postcards, the DNA, the babysitter, etc., etc. And the fact that there is no obvious motive whatsoever, There, I, I just don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that when we do wrongful conviction cases, I can look at it and say, I have no idea why the jury convicted. There's not enough evidence here. In this one, I totally see why they convicted him. That DNA evidence is really hard to overcome. And I find myself having trouble in my brain overcoming that there was DNA evidence of his. But that there was DNA evidence of someone else then makes me lean the other way. So I'm really, have I don't know. I know a lot of people feel very strongly one way or the other. I have a relative who lived a mile and a half from the crime scene at the time, and she's convinced he's innocent. Convinced. But just as many people are convinced he's guilty, I, I good for them because I can't, <laughs> I have no idea how to come up with an answer to this one. I guess one thing that does kind of bother me in this case is, how do you think that someone who committed this crime, how did he not commit other violent crimes in all those years since then? I mean, I'm not defending him. I'm not saying he's innocent or guilty because I really don't know. But I'm just trying to figure out how someone who is capable of doing that and who must be a sociopath, how does he get his act together and not murder more people? 
Right, and that makes my brain go right back to that Jay Mintz case in 1987, where if they are linked, then yes, that person did do it again, and that person couldn't have been Tim Hennis. Okay, and you know what? There are always going to be unanswered questions in every investigation, even when the system does get it right. There will always be things that never add up. We see that time and time again in the Whitman case, in the Duca case, in the Chamberlain case. You'll have footprints that won't match the perpetrator or there won't be an obvious motive. There seems to be always an unexplained coincidence or blatant errors or anomalies that allow guilty people to hide behind or defence attorneys to use to sell some reasonable doubt. And then the jury's expected to have to dig through all of it. There's no wonder that they do get it wrong sometimes. So to close out the show... We're going to start something else in 2017, and we want to start saying thank you to those that have left us five-star reviews and to our Patreon supporters. And over the next few months, we will be getting around to all of you. We have to play a little catch-up since we're just starting it now. So I want to say first thank you to Fickle Fan for leaving us our very first five-star review way back in May. Uh, Z2BB left a review appreciating our original scripting and that we don't just read off a of Wikipedia. Though after writing this, what, 15-page script, <laughs> that's sounding kind of tempting. And D Crime Fan sent us a thumbs up. So thank you guys so much. And to a few of our Patreon supporters, a huge thank you to Jessica M. We hope you love your t-shirt. And thank you to Clara and Jamie a uh, funny story, but I actually know all three of those people. So, hey, guys. <laughs> and you can find us on Facebook. We have a page and a group. We have a lot of discussions in the group, some behind-the-scenes stuff. So go ahead and ask to join that, and we will approve you. We are on Twitter at InsightfulPod, and I'm the one who mans that. Allie is on Instagram at InsightPod, and our email is InsightfulPod at gmail.com, and our website is InsightPod.com. We hope you guys rate, review, and subscribe in iTunes or whatever app you use. It really helps us out, and we will see you guys next week. Yeah, I think I need to pick a less full-on case next week. Yeah, let's go with something a little bit um, less. Good idea. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.